Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 31 this morning. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. It's the desire to look at verses 31 through 39 together this morning. Under the title of the promise of perseverance. We are on the other side of a national presidential election. So we do have a new president, and with that comes, at least for those who voted for him, a new sense of optimism in the world. And uh, for those who didn't, is uh, perhaps a much different outlook. But not wanting to be a killjoy in all of this, particularly for those who are highly optimistic... I think it's just necessary to tell you that essentially nothing has changed and that all of the significant problems that are out there on the backside of this coming storm remain. And the difficulties that will come upon the people of God here in this country and throughout the world have not changed because of a particular candidate who was elected to the office of the President of the United States. So we can rejoice in the work of God that he raises leaders and he sets them aside again, all according to his sovereign plan. We do pray for our leaders. We pray for peace in the world. We certainly want to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So all of that is important and necessary. But beloved, hard times are still coming. And the purpose of this sermon series about living as a persecuted minority in a in a hostile world, remains. So it's been a lot of difficult news, I know, over the last number of months. And I want to finish the series this week and next, Lord willing, with a couple of messages designed to uh, really strengthen us, give an anchor to our soul, and give us stability, sure footing in a world that is a very dangerous and slippery sort of place. So this morning, I want to speak with you about perseverance and the promise of our perseverance that the Apostle Paul has for us here in Romans chapter 8 and beginning in verse 31. Follow along as I read the text. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. Amen and amen. Paul begins this section here with a question in verse 31 that closes out, really, the first half of his epistle. The question is, what shall we say to these things? These things is a reference back to the golden chain of redemption here in verses 29 and 30, where Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to this golden chain of redemption? What shall we say? Paul says, if God is for us, God is for us. What a glorious statement, beloved. It really embodies the entire teaching of this epistle up to this point. It sweeps up in that short statement that God is for us, the painful, dark, stark reality of our own depravity that Paul presents in chapters 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3. It captures up in it the the wonderful truth of justification in Jesus Christ in the second half of chapter 3 and chapters 4 and 5. And it sweeps up the, the doctrine, the comforting doctrine of sanctification that he presents for us in chapters 6, 7, and 8. So it's all bound up in this. What shall we say to these things? God is for us. God is for us. And beloved, that statement should cause you and I to reflect. That's the kind of statement that as you're reading this gospel, you ought to pause. You ought to put your Bible down for a moment or two, and you ought to think about the implications of a statement that God is for us. It is God's great plan of redemption. It is the means by which God reaches out to his enemies, to those that, whom deserve his judgment. And by his marvelous crosswork of his son, Jesus Christ, he redeems them as a people to himself, and he plunges them into the body of Christ, holding on to them both now and eternally in their new status as sons of the living God. That ought to give us a lot of comfort and a lot of pause. Structurally, Paul breaks down this particular section, this, this climax of all that he has been teaching here into four rhetorical questions. Four rhetorical questions and answers. And what I've done for our outline this morning is I've tried to summarize the main point of each of the four questions into a short statement. Just a short statement. So I've got four short statements that embody the promise of perseverance that, are, that Paul gives us here in chapter 8, verses 31 to the end of the chapter. So, the first statement that he makes for us here in verse 31 is, we have a champion. That's the first statement. We have a champion. We have a champion. If God is for us, he says, who is against us? Now, the if here really 
could be translated and probably should be understood as since. Since God is for us, who is against us? He, he is not introducing uncertainty. He is drawing out the implications of verses 29 and 30, the golden chain of redemption. Since God is for us, who possibly could be against us? In other words, he is issuing a challenge to all of our adversaries to, to step forward, make your case, come to the battle line. You could think of it almost in the story of David and Goliath. You remember that? You've got the armies of Israel and you've got the armies of the Philistines. And, you know, uh, Goliath comes out and says, send out your champion. Send out the one who will do battle with me and, the, and those that are arrayed against God. And, of course, David goes out in the name of the living God and slays Goliath. And that's kind of the idea here is, is Paul is saying, since God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Just step back. Let your champion fight your battle for you. Let him take care of your adversaries. I think about uh, Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, where Luther writes, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. And who might that be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Paul says here, since God is for us, who possibly could be against us? Who is going to stand against our champion? I think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, beloved, in John 18. There, in the Gethsemane, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, you remember Judas and the temple guard came along with a cohort of Roman soldiers. And they came out with, with swords and clubs and torches to, to arrest Jesus. And, and as they entered the garden, Jesus stepped forward and he said to them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I am. And John narrates for us that, that the entire Roman cohort and those with them took a step back and fell to their faces in the presence of the living God. I am the, the divine name, the, the very name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And the very speaking of that name and the voice of the, of the God of Israel, the entire Roman cohort falls flat. Why? They're in the presence of the champion, Almighty God Himself. I'm, uh, I have to chuckle because Peter, of course, responding to his uh, champion's display of power, does what? You remember? He reaches into his cloak and he pulls out his, you know, little 18-inch. Uh, uh, sword there, and he takes a whack at the head of the slave of the high priest, uh, managing only to sever an ear. What made Peter so brave? Why was Peter so bold? Well, it's, I think, pretty simple, because from Peter's point of view, listen, this is an easily winnable fight, right? Lord, all you have to do is speak, and they fall flat. They fall flat. Since God is for us, who will 
stand against us? Where are the challengers? Where are the accusers? Beloved, we could say it this way. Since God is on our side, bring it on. Bring it on. We've got many enemies in this world, right? John says the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they seek our ruin. But God is on our side. God is on our side. Remember the lesson here of verse 28, right? Nothing is so strong in its opposition to us that that God can't and doesn't subdue it and force it to work for our good. We know that God causes, he says, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, we have a promise of perseverance and it's embodied in this statement. We have a champion. We have a champion. Secondly, the victory is won. We have a champion, and the victory is won. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul structures this in the form of a rhetorical question, but, but in it, it contains really the, the most convincing proof imaginable for the, for the kindness, for the mercy, for the mind-boggling grace of God. There's an echo of Genesis 22 here, isn't there, with, with Abraham's offering of Isaac, except there, Abraham never finally carries through with the offering, but, but when God offers his son, he carries it through to the end. Jesus was slain in our place. Jesus did drink the the cup of the wrath of God down to and including the very last drop. Look at this word, sparing. He did not spare his own son. It's a reference to to, uh, suffering. A reference to suffering that's been inflicted here. When a judge spares a criminal, they, they refrain from extracting the judgment penalty that is, that is rightfully due to that criminal. But, but here, Jesus is not a criminal, but, but God does not spare his son. That is, that God inflicts upon his son the penalty due our sin. He didn't lighten it in any way. He didn't withhold that which was due. Not one little bit. The prophet Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 53 and verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 that Jesus was made sin for us. Galatians 3.13, Jesus became a curse for us. The father delivered over his son to both damnation and abandonment. And Jesus himself voiced it in Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Beloved, this is a classical case of the argument from the greater to the lesser. Because God has done the most difficult and the most costly thing, which is to sacrifice his own son, then he will certainly not withhold anything from his children that is trivial in comparison to what he has already given us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us All things, all things, 
I think in context here, the the reference to all things is the fullness of our salvation. That is everything necessary for, for our perpetual standing as sinners, wrapped in the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, whose status has been changed from enemy to child of God. He gave us his son. He didn't spare his son. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, he will hold back from us. Listen. Listen to it. If the father did not spare his own son, but delivered him up to the agony and shame of the cross, how could he possibly fail to bring about the result that required such a horrendous event in the first place? Do you understand this? Because God did not spare his son, but gave him up to this horrendous death, then God will do all that is necessary to bring about the outcome that this horrendous death was designed to accomplish. What this means is that the death of Jesus Christ does not provide a potential salvation. A potential salvation that that waits upon the fickle humanity to embrace it or reject it. No, actually what it means is the excruciating death of the only begotten Son of God secures the redemption for the elect of God. Those who are irresistibly and irrevocably drawn to faith in Jesus Christ. That is exactly what Paul says in verses 29 and 30. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is a golden chain of redemption and there is not a link missing anywhere along the way. We have a champion The victory is won. Third, our guilt is gone. Our guilt is gone, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Again, this this idea of a charge, it's a legal term, and, and it has the idea of bringing a charge against someone in a court of law. Who will bring a case against God's elect. And and it's spoken of where it says, who will bring a charge? It's a future tense verb here. It's it's a reference to the final judgment. Who in the final judgment will dare bring a charge, an accusation against the elect of God? Who would dare? Not Satan, the accuser. Not other people who would point out our many shortcomings and flaws. Not even our own conscience that is, conscience that is intimately aware of, of how fall, far short we, we fall, right? In, in thought, word, and deed. Not even God himself. This is incredible. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Not even God himself. Not even God himself. Why? Because he is the one who justifies. See it in verse 33? He's not going to bring a charge because he is the one who has acquitted us and declared us righteous. Who has arranged to exchange our guilt for the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ. Who would dare to attempt to condemn us? Who would dare, verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Beloved, you know what? The accusations 
that could that come against God's elect. They're like tennis balls against the, the uh, turret of an Abram's tank. All right? They make no impact. They, they, they bounce off it without in making any dent or impact at all. Because God has justified all accusations, whether they come from the devil, whether they come from you, whether they come from someone else, it doesn't matter. All of them bounce off the armor of Christ. Christ Jesus, verse 34, is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Your security this morning, if you are a child of God, is grounded in the actions of the Son of God himself. Your security, your perseverance is grounded in the actions of the Son. Paul briefly highlights for them for us here, right? Where he says here in verse 34, Christ Jesus is he who died. He died. It's a rather simple and compressed statement. And in it, it it captures all the wonder and all the horror of Jesus' sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. He died for us. He rose from the dead for us. He was raised, Paul says here, right? He died, verse 34. Yes, rather, who was raised? It is his resurrection that is the definitive proof that the Father has accepted his sacrifice on behalf of his people. Beloved, death cannot hold the Son of God, for he did not die for his own sin, but for mine and for those who would come to him in faith. He died. Yes, rather, he was raised. And where is he now? He is at the right hand of the Father. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He is in the place of power. The place of dominion. He is, he is seated in the place where all authority in heaven and on earth, we're told in Matthew 28 and verse 18, is, is given to him. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. There is no power raised against him that can stand. No hostile power can wrest his people from his hand. He sits at the Father's right hand. And fourth, he makes intercession for us he makes intercession for us you see at verse 34 he is the great high priest he is the one who is constantly in the presence of god the father speaking on behalf of his people hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 beloved it doesn't matter how bad we fall how bad we fail It doesn't matter how bad we mess up. It doesn't matter what accusation gets hurled against us. Jesus sits at the Father's right hand. And there, as it were, he reminds the Father regularly, my blood covers this too. My blood covers this as well. I have paid for this also. All their sin has been extinguished, has been paid for in the blood of Christ. Verse John chapter 2 and verse 1. Finally, beloved, the fourth and final glorious statement here is that God's grip is secure. Did you love that? God's grip is secure. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
Who will separate us from the love of Christ? To be separated is the, literally, it means to put space between. Who will put space between God and us, right? What, who or what can put distance between Christ's love for us? Who can create a separation? There can, can anything, anyone, cause Jesus to stop loving you this morning? Can anything cause the love of Christ to fail for you? What or who can separate us from the love of Christ? Paul begins to search the universe, as it were. And he, he, he mentions seven different things. Seven different things. And, and it's not an extra, exhaustive list. It's, a, it's a more of a representative list. It's the kind of dangers that, are, that, are, that the people of God have historically faced. Look at them here in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation separate us? Shall distress separate us? How about persecution? Will that separate us? Or famine? How about nakedness? Will that separate us from the love of Christ? When we have nothing to eat and nothing to wear, is that evidence that we have been separated from the love of Christ? All about the peril that comes upon us or the sword that those who would seek our own lives, is is that evidence that we have been separated from the love of Christ? Paul responds here in verse 36 with an Old Testament citation. Verse 44, Psalm 44 and verse 22. And by the citation, he, he reminds us that this is nothing new. Just as it is written, this is nothing new. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, uh, the, the suffering that comes upon the people of God is no new thing. The people of God have always suffered. The people of God have always been considered as sheep for the marketplace, ready to be slaughtered. But in all these things, verse 37, do you see it? (laughs) But in all these things, we squeak by. Is that what it says? In all these things, but in all these things, all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. This is an incredibly strong contrast. When you think about it, in the outward appearances, Christians are losers. You are a loser this morning. Welcome to the club. Okay? We are counted as nothing. We are counted as nothing. We are regularly called upon to suffer. Apparently, We call God our our Father, right? That we're children of the King, but we sure don't look like it. The events and circumstances of life through the history of the people of God has, has not looked from the outside like they belong to the King. In fact, just the opposite. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, Sword. But Paul, look what he says. In all these things, in contrast to the way it looks, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Beloved, listen. 
We don't just squeeze by. We don't just kick a field goal in the final seconds, you know, and kind of eke out the win. It says we overwhelmingly conquer. We, we crush it. We crush it. Not in our own strength, but what? Verse 37, through him who loved us. In other words, we participate in the victory that Jesus Christ has already won. Jesus has conquered sin and its consequence, death. How do I know that? Because he rose from the dead on the third day. And because he rose from the dead and lives forevermore, he has conquered all. And he shares it with us. We participate in the victory with him. So on the outside, it looks perhaps like really grim. But listen, the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't depend upon our hold on Christ to enjoy this victory, but it is Christ's hold on us. All right, we overwhelmingly conquer. You see it, verse 37, through him, through him. I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and I was thinking about one of my grandkids. Recently, I was at a place where I was with my, one of my grandchildren, and I was taking them across the street. And so what I said to them was, is hold on to Grampy's hand while we cross the street. And so they reach up and they hold on to, a, you know, my hand, a couple of fingers in my hand. And we cross the street. Now here's the question for you to think through. Does my grandchild's security in crossing the street depend upon their teeny grasp on my two fingers, or does it depend upon my whole-handed grasp of them? Right? It is, it is my grasp of them. It is not their grasp of me. And yet I still tell them to hang on. To hang on. And that's what God would say to us this morning and, and, and for every morning. Hang on to me. But beloved, ultimately it is not our grip on him. It is his grip on us. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then Paul adds his personal declaration of support, his personal testimony, the testimony of his own life, forged, forged in the fires of personal trial. Paul says with a, with a settled certainty here, for I am convinced, perfect tense verb, literally, I stand convinced. I stand convinced that nothing can come between me and my God. And he looks around, verse 38 and 39. He uses the telescope to look out into the far reaches of the universe. He, he uses the microscope, as it were, to look, you know, to look down deep at the small things. He looks at the natural world. He looks at the supernatural world. He, he scans it all, and his final conclusion is, I'm safe. I am safe. These last two verses here, verse 38 and 39, are really a, a statement of reflection. A statement of personal reflection. Paul says, for I am convinced, I stand convinced, because of what Christ has done, that neither death nor life, neither death nor life. Death is the dreaded enemy, is it not? It is death that separates the loved ones. It is death that is the scourge of mankind. Nothing's more painful, nothing's more fearful, nothing's more uncertain 
than death. And Paul says, listen, for the Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. That's why Paul can say that for him, right, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. Paul says, I am settled in my own mind that that death cannot separate me. Not death nor life. Not death nor life. That is, not the trials of life, not the distresses of life, not the enticements of life, not the distractions of life. Neither death nor life nor life can separate me, nor angels, nor principalities. He moves here to the spiritual realm. He speaks about the realm of angels, the realm of demons, of which Satan himself is a part. And and he says, not even these powerful spirit beings can put the slightest dent in my standing with Christ. They can't make the smallest crack in the love of God for me. Not angels, not principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. Here he he looks at time, and he says, time cannot crack my union with Christ. That is, nothing that is happening today, nothing that might happen tomorrow, can in any way diminish God's love for you as his child, God's love for me. Beloved, that means we can face the future, right? Wherever the future holds for us, we can face it. Why? Because God is already there. He is already waiting for us. His arms are open wide to us. Not things present and not things to come. Nor powers. The reference here, dunamis, I think is a reference to miracles. I think perhaps uh, he's speaking here of the counterfeit miracles. That will come in the last days. He refers to them in 2 Thess, verses two, uh, chapter 2 and verse 9. And I think what he's saying here is that, is that not even the deception of false miracles can separate me from the love of Christ. Nor height, nor depth. <laughs> well, listen, if the supernatural world can't do it, how about the natural world? Nope. Nothing in heaven. Nothing on earth. No creature that inhabits heaven or earth. No created thing. Do you see it? Not height, nor depth, nor any other created thing has the power to pick us off from the hand of God. Nothing can pluck us from the hand of God. And by the way, this means Christians themselves. Some people say, yeah, 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 but, but I can you know, decide to jump out of his hand. Not so. That's silly. That's silly. You cannot permanently wander from the faith. You cannot undo the new birth. If you have been born into the family of God, that is a a one-way street. No more than you could undo your own physical birth to become unborn. It cannot be. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. It is God's love for us, beloved, not our love for him. It is all about him. And the love of God can be accessed only by faith in the 
death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. To turn from our sin and to embrace Christ as our only hope. When we come to him by faith, believing his death to be on our behalf. His resurrection to to seal our future resurrection. To know that in faith union with him, we are now a child of God. That we are connected to Christ by faith and a child of the Father. This is the stability of our soul. This is the perseverance in the midst of all difficulties. So we finish up this morning. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the love of God in Christ Jesus this morning? Do you personally know it? Not know of it. I've heard about it. Do you know it? Have you this morning received the love of God in Christ? And if you haven't, would you like to? Would you like to be free from your burden of sin and guilt? Would you like to know with the kind of certainty that Paul talks about here that nothing can separate you, that, that no, nothing that comes upon you in this life or the next can possibly sever your relationship to God? If you want to live with that kind of certainty, you can. And I invite you to to come after the service and just come down front here and let's talk. Let me open the scriptures with you. Show you clearly how you too can be a child of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we have moved very quickly through this section and in no way have we plumbed the, the majesty of the depths, the height of the cliffs of this wonderful dense and rich theological section whereby Paul speaks about our confidence and our standing with you. But Father, I pray this morning that your spirit would use some of what was said here this morning, some some of what we've heard, what we have read, to encourage each and every one of us. Our Father, the world around us is a very, very uncertain place. Father, I thank you for that because... You are using it to to work in the hearts of people to cause them to question just what their lives are really built on. We know, our Father, that the only thing of substance, the only thing that will last, the only thing that will stand in the judgment is a life that is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. So I pray, Father, for us who know him, that you would strengthen us today in that knowledge and love. And for those here this morning who don't, that you would so move even now that you would draw them to yourself and, and open their eyes that they might see, their ears that they might hear, flood their hearts with love for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.